Good morning, beloved. Good morning. Good morning. Say good morning to everyone that watching at home. I have to have different hand signs to everyone. Preaching the whole gospel of Jesus Christ includes the good news, God's saving power for all who would believe. It also includes the bad news of God's condemning wrath, what it is we're being saved from. Today's message is bad news. Paul describes the mess that we're in, the mess that we're all in. It's a dark picture of the human condition. Put it another way, it's a dire diagnosis. As upsetting, offensive, hurtful as it may make some of us feel, it is nonetheless the truth spoken in a post-truth world. It may be one of the last times it could be spoken and aired. We'll see. A dire diagnosis. A patient sees test results and can be offended, get angry, and storm out of the exam room when the oncologist tells her patient that he has an untreatable tumor. Cancer doesn't care about our feelings. Praise God that Jesus does, and we do. We love you, and I love you, and I love all of you watching at home. But today's text is that dire diagnosis. It's the bad news of the gospel. Before we get to the good news throughout the rest of the series of Romans. And we're looking today at one of the most controversial texts in Scripture. One of six Scriptures that have brought up so much pain and anger and anguish. For over 20 years, I've had hard conversations related to this text and the the five like it. I've had those conversations over all these years in, in churches, on campuses, in homes, in coffee shops, even in cabarets, with Christians and non-Christians alike, who've held different points of view, each a unique story to tell, all made in the image of God, all with a lot of feelings. I'd say this at the outset, unless we, we learn to accept other people and affirm their experiences, not necessarily agree, but affirm them with their Dignity, their God-given, made in the image of God, dignity with respect. If we can't do that, then we've lost the art of conversation. In these conversations that I've had, I've, I've done a lot of listening before I speak, and I own my own bias. And then I try to speak with compassion, humility, and love, yet admittedly with strong conviction as a disciple of Jesus but always with respect, regardless of a person's age, race, gender, identity, sexual orientation, or political persuasion. This, what we're doing right now today, is not that kind of conversation. It's not the nature of of it. This is a proclamation, a sermon that you're listening, and you're listening at home. But I invite the conversation that will come and I invite the conversations that will happen uh, in your small groups after this morning. 
The main point of the whole book of Romans can be summed up in chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul lifts it from uh, the, the book of Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And then the very next sentence, verse 18, through the middle of chapter 3, spells out the bad news and answers the question, why? Why do the righteous have to live by faith? Why must we be saved by grace through faith? Isn't there another way to attain salvation? Can it be inherited or, or earned or, or sent down from generation to generation? Why by faith alone? And so this morning and next Sunday and the Sunday after that, three sermons of the bad news. 10% of our 30-some-odd sermons in this whole series. I am real good about the math there. Paul takes up over two chapters spelling out why humankind is in trouble, why humanity is condemned by God's just, holy, and perfect standard. Today's passage is the diagnosis of Gentiles, and next Sunday it's among the Jews. Remember Paul's writing to a church in Rome that's made up of both Gentile, that is non-Jewish people, and Jewish people who have returned to Rome after being exiled for five years. These are people that, that believe that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah. And they're coming back together, and Paul's addressing a number of deep theological, racial, social issues, and theological issues. So today's passage diagnosis the Gentiles, all guilty and in big trouble. And next time he turns his attention to the Jews to say, you are equally guilty before God. We'll get the bad news before we get the good news. Listen now to God's word. Verses 18 and following, chapter 1 of Romans, it's also on the screen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's degree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Bad news. God hates all sin, and sinners are subject to holy anger, both in unrighteousness and uh, ungodliness. Ungodliness, the term there is the willful refusal to acknowledge the truth that there is a creator. It has to do with our, our vertical relationship. Ungodliness would be our vertical relationship between creator and creature that we, we reject that relationship wholesale, he says. And unrighteousness is the mess we've made in all of our personal social interactions with one another, the interpersonal horizontal relationships. He says our relationship with God is the ungodliness is disordered and our relationships with one another are disordered. As we know, Jesus taught us to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. On this, all of the law and the prophets hang. And he's saying here, both the love for God and love for neighbor is completely out of whack. According to God's holy standard, humanity has failed at both miserably. This is the bad news. Now, with regard to the first passage about the relationship with our creator, Paul writes that humankind is guilty of a cover-up. He says, uh, suppressing of truth. Everyone, he says, knows better, he writes, because the creator is plain as day. God has made himself known. Someone would say, how can I be held accountable for something that I don't? How can I be held accountable for, for a God that I've never even heard of? Yet, yet Paul writes, all of humankind can know everything about God, his love, his mercy, his holy character. Those are things revealed in special revelation that would be in, in God's God's word here, the attributes of God, but what can be known of God in what's known as general revelation, what can be known of God in creation, stepping outside and breathing air and looking at the created order of things and the intellect that God's given you, that he's given you a heart, soul, and mind. God can be known. By way of your God-given intellect and consciousness, that whoever created all this must be a being of immense greatness. And Paul says, the people suppressed that truth. They kept it undercover. Look at verse 21. Although they knew God. Remember, this passage is, in particular, Paul has in mind the Gentiles in his audience because he's going to turn his attention to uh, the Jews in the next passage. But although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul writes they made idols to worship, and this is the very uh, foundation of all of our sin is idol worship, creating of things to worship instead of worshiping the creator, things to love instead of the creator, things to rely on, things to lean on instead of our creator. In a typical Roman home, there would be, uh, in the midst of that home, a, a little altar, a little shrine with little figurines uh, made of, of, of wood or, or metal that would be shaped in various forms of a, of a human being or an animal or bird or reptile, and they would be held up and held to and, and even adored. This is the fatal exchange, trading the, tr- the truth about God for a lie, searching for meaning in, in nature, in the mountains, in the woods, in the prairies, in the animals that, that run through the fields and the birds that fly overhead instead of in God. And it is here that Paul's describing what's known as the old religions, the old pagan religions that have been around for such a long time. Anything to take the place of the creator. We are one with all of creation, with all these things that we can tap into, or we are the creature and he is the creator. For hundreds of years, the church applied this text to pagan idolatry. But wood, stone, and metal idols were replaced later by mental idols, forms of what's called Gnosticism, secret knowledge. Secret knowing became the idol. You could tap into it. You could read the stars. You could look within and and find secret knowledge to harness the power of the universe and find meaning out there or in here. Fast forward to the 18th century, enlightenment uh, rationalism was to say, we don't need God anymore. We can think for ourselves and be our own gods. That gave way to a secular humanism. Our soul is our minds. Let's do away with Christendom and the the words of Scripture. Let's use reason and science and new technology and breakthroughs, all of which were supported by the church and enhanced by the church and the great wonders of the world, both in in the West and the great wonders discovered uh, in the global South. This was the new dawn of a new era And yet, according to Scripture, it was yet another example of the dismantling of the vertical relationship. So you can draw a direct line from the Tower of Babel, the Book of Romans, to where we are today. For now, we have a form of humanism that is a spiritual humanism, not a secular humanism. We want to get back to that sense of, of something grander, something beyond our, our knowing. And so many of us will say or hear someone say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And what's so fascinating is the old pagan religions are coming back into great popularity. And in the not-too-distant future, advanced technology will replace humanism with dataism as a new form of religion. This is a, a new concept, but it's becoming extremely popular. I've been reading up on it. It says there is no soul, 
There is no conscious. You are just a, a bunch of chemical reactions in a bag of flesh that can be manipulated and fixed by technology and can be easily calculated and manipulated. Why would you have to search for meaning in Scripture or out looking at a beautiful sunset or reflecting on something and writing a beautiful poem? Just plug your data into the internet of all things and you will learn your purpose, your value, who to marry, what your vocation would be. Information flow will be the new liturgy. Algorithms will define what is true and what is false. Computer systems will be the gods of the near future, which is terrifying on many counts, not the least of which my son is planning to study computer science in college. With all of our great advancement, with all of our great wonders, beyond even understanding things that just in our own lifetime seem like science fiction and they're becoming reality, Paul says, in their wisdom, they became fools. Their thinking was futile. Look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They made that fatal exchange. You know, Christians are often accused of being repressed. Are you so uptight? You're so uptight. Just loosen up, man. Lighten up. You should be more open to what's really going on out in the world. What Scripture teaches is actually the opposite. That those that don't know Christ are being repressed, suppressing what's really real. And that it's in knowing this vertical relationship, rediscovering it, being invited into it, that there is a God and he is our creator and we are made in his image that we can truly live in freedom. Yet Paul described here in these first verses the disorder of that vertical relationship. And then Paul goes on to write about the disorder, the dishonor, the confusion of our relationships with one another in society. Eugene Peterson writes this transitional verse in his version, that The Message. Worse followed, he writes, Refusing to know God, they soon didn't know how to be human either. So verses 26 and 27 are one of the six texts in Scripture which state that homosexual behavior is a sin. Scripture is unambiguous about it. The Christian sexual ethic states fidelity in marriage between one man and one woman or chastity in singleness. Paul writes of words like dishonorable passions and lusts. This is to say, God-given passion, it's God-given, God-designed, in overdrive, expressed in a direction was not according to design and does not lead to the best life that God would have. Recent attempts to recast orthodox traditional understanding of the text say, well, this text and others like it are referring to people who act against their own nature. Or, or it's referring to those that are promiscuous and non-consensual behavior, pagan temple uh, actions, things that are reprehensible. Paul didn't understand what it meant uh, for now in, in, in the, today's understanding of long-term monogamous consensual relationships. And that's not true. Paul was a 
Roman citizens familiar with the culture of his times and those times recorded in extra-biblical uh, historical writings. This is people that are no friends to Jesus, people. But writing of the Roman Empire, writing of the time, the very times in which Paul existed. All of these behaviors and lifestyles were represented in that day as they are today. Paul is speaking into this to help under, people understand the nature of a new humanity that Christ was calling people into. Sin is still sin. It must be in order of God's design, God's best for you. Once a civil rights issue, once surely a great pain suffered by ministers and people of the church, exacted, pointed out, condemned, a seemingly noble request to be treated equal is now re- defining the very notion of sexuality for everyone. For everyone. And those relationships are impacted deeply. You draw a line between from secular humanism to uh, Jungian psychology to the 60s sexual revolution. Draw a straight line through all of them. We've got some baby boomers here, right? What were you all singing or Maybe not you, but others, what were we singing? When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planets, right? And love will what? Steer the stars. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. The age of Aquarius. I know every word of hair. <laughs> the age of Aquarius, again, a pagan understanding of, of uh, astrology. The age of Aquarius that's now dawning in the late 60s, you know what comes before the age of Aquarius? The age of Pisces, the age of the fish, Christendom. Christianity is dead. It's behind us. Now we can enter a new, liberated, evolved state of being human. I want to pause there and ask you to look back at verse 24 for a moment. Paul begins this section on disordered horizontal relationships, highlighting that all sex outside of marriage is dishonoring to our creator. Look at verse 24. He's speaking to all of us of the ideal plans that God has for his people. And then he becomes specific in verses 26 and 27. The call to follow Christ is a costly obedience And some of the most mature disciples of Jesus that I've known personally make each day the difficult choice to align their lives with a biblical view of sexuality, and they are a gift to the church. Fidelity and chastity apply to all disciples, gay and straight. Here at MVC, we love all people. All people are welcomed. The LGBTQIA communities, they're not monolithic, they're all unique communities, they are welcomed. And I know even saying this to you here and you watching at home, some are shaking your heads, but it's true. We love and welcome everyone because Jesus loves and welcomes everyone. We love and welcome everyone because through Jesus, he has brought a revolution. He has introduced 
a new humanity. He has brought forth a new way of relating to one, a new way of relating to God intimately and closely, and a new way of being with one another in community as brothers and sisters in Christ. So all are welcomed here, including those guilty of the next list that I'm about to look at. Look at verses 29 to 31. I can hardly read this list again because most of us are going to have lunch right after, after this, and it takes away my appetite because it's such a sad list of evils. And yet as I see this list, envy, murder, think about what Jesus said about, about to murder someone, your attitude towards them. You've heard it said, but I say to you, strife, maliciousness, gossip, slanders. If we go through this list, it's also upsetting because it reminds me of my own sin. My old nature before knowing Christ, and yet how it's still time and again. Disobedient to parents. Anyone being disobedient to your parents? How foolish and faithless and heartless and ruthless we can be. That's why we come together in community. And so I won't reread the whole list of these things, but Lord have mercy. Look at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And I have in mind here respectable sins. There are certainly sins that we can easily point a finger at and say, well, that's really, really bad. But, but what about some of these ones that we seem to, uh, boastfulness. Someone's being boastful. That is listed here as a sin. Like, well, they're just proud of themselves. I, I don't know. It says it right here. Disobedient to parents. Well, you know, we should pray for someone who's being disobedient to one's parents. Theologians call today's bad news passage, which is almost over, a description of what's called total depravity. If you're taking notes, you can write down the words total depravity. While not everything we do is always completely sinful, of course not so much what is done is, is good, meaningful. Yet nothing we do is completely untouched by sin. That's the definition of total depravity. So how does God respond? Paul spilled all this out. How does God respond? He says three times he gave them up. Look at verse 24, 26, and 28. You could circle or underline. He gave them up. The NIV will say he gave them over. I kind of like that, that version because we would say in our common vernacular, God never gives up. God never gives up on anyone, right? But, but the Greek here is he gave them up. God lets us go ahead with our fatal exchange. You see, God's love is unconditional, but that's not the same as unconditional approval of our behavior. So Paul writes it, God gives us what we want. It's the consequences that come our way of the broken relationships. And yet there's a glimmer of hope. Listen, behind whoop, the bad news is yet good news. This is why we need God to do something only God can do. He, he spells out how terrible the situation is for us to really get it. Why would you go for only half the message? God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that the whole gospel? No. No, we're in serious, serious trouble, but the good news is right around the corner. And so that patient storms out of the office, and the oncologist races down the hall, and she grabs her patient and grabs him and says, I know it's dire. I have the same diagnosis for myself. 
But there is hope. And the hope is Jesus. Jesus is the great physician. He made the way. He took all the the sentence of, of death, of ungodliness and unrighteousness, and his blood is the cure. At the cross, we see the juxtaposition of God's love and wrath met in Christ, poured out at Calvary. And so while God's justice demands a response to sin, now one of us is holy. Paul says he's the chief among sinners. Not one of us can do it. While justice and holiness demands to be solved, his love is provided for us in Christ at the cross. The solution, the treatment, the cure. And so the hope is met at the cross, which will have 28 sermons to preach about. Our purpose as a church, because God's deep love for us, Maple Valley Church exists to restore people into full life through Jesus Christ. So what does that look like? How, how is this passage restorative? How is this restorative? How can it be applied? A couple of thoughts. Number one, recognize this picture of reality that God has given to us of what's true, what's really real. Truth in a post-truth world. Recognize it. Look around the world around you. Hold up scripture. Hold up the newspaper and see what's really real. In the beauty of creation, we see God exists. In the brokenness of the world, we see God is just. In my own struggle with idols and flesh, I see and you can see the mercy of God at the cross. Number two, never point a self-righteous finger at another person, another human being, or you cast judgment upon yourself. But by grace, pursue the opposite of all the things listed here, I would encourage you as a small group, when you go, when you go through the study, what's the opposite of what you can see here that can be applied to fear God, to pursue godliness and righteousness, to worship the Lord, to honor marriages, to live in harmony and community, to show love to all, to put other people first. It is to be in the way of Jesus. I'll invite Rob and the team to come on up and get ready for one last song and a couple of final thoughts. The deepest joy and intimacy in this life can be found only in relationship with Jesus. I know this to be true because I became a Christian when I was 18, the only believer in my family, and I've known it all this time, and you can know it too, in relationship with him, in community with his people, in experiencing a new humanity, a new way of relating to the world around you. It's far deeper and far more rich. Friendship, fellowship, identity. God wants to pull you into his redeeming creation and to experience grace like never before in his new community, in his new identity, revealed purpose for our lives. Now I want to say one last thing. If you come to Jesus, he will never ever let you go. Say, this message is making me mad, I'm confused, I don't know, but I want, I want to look to Jesus. If you look to Jesus by faith, he will never, ever let you go. He'll hold on to you. 
The righteous will live by faith. Paul writes this letter from Corinth. He's a long ways off. He's going to come visit this church. And so he's in Greece. He's in the city of Corinth among the Corinthians there, the church there that he spent so much time with. And he says to them in his first letter to them, chapter 6, he says all the same things. He lists out right to his own people, right to their face, all the sins. He labels them all out to them. How uncomfortable that would be. But then he says this in verse 11. That is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And on that final day, all we can do is plead the blood of Christ. Whatever we do in this life, we say, Jesus, take my hand, lead me forward, Lord Jesus. And whatever we have done in this life, we come before his judgment seat one day, all we can say is now a list of all the things we've done. I wasn't as bad as these people. I wasn't like, no. We plead the blood of Christ. So Rob, would you come, please, and, and lead us, teach us how to sing the song, but also what, what does it mean, the blood applied? And let's sing together, and then we'll pray.